Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event, this event takes place on the lands of Blackfoot people and the Métis nations of Alberta Region 3. And we pay our respects to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today we're very pleased to have with us our speaker Richard Phillips. Thank you for joining us today. Richard is the chair of the irrigation Richard is the chair of the Irrigating Alberta, the consortium of irrigation district participating in the Alberta Irrigation Modernization Program. He's been with the Bow River Irrigation District since 1996, initially as the district engineer and as the general manager since 2004. He serves as the vice chair of the Alberta Irrigation District Association and the Bow River Basin Council and chair of the Foxhall and District Regional Water Services Commission. He has a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering from the University of Alberta and is a professional engineer. His, he enjoys fishing and a variety of other outdoor recreational activities. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard, and we look forward to your presentation. Well, thank you. It's great to be here and I look forward to uh, discussing the questions after the presentation. Uh, again, today's presentation is about the Alberta Irrigation Modernization Program, which I'll simply refer to as AIM from here on, uh, the large uh, program that was announced back in the fall of 2020. And I'll be comparing that program to what's been going on before the program was announced and uh, seeing what the similarities and differences are. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, sorry, just a second here. Okay, good. So just a bit of background first. Alberta has 13 irrigation districts in total, ranging from very large to very small. Collectively, we irrigate about 1.5 million acres. Three districts get their water from the Bow River, one from the main stem of the Old Man, eight from St. Mary Waterton and Belly Rivers, which are Old Man tributaries, and one from Ross Creek down in the Cypress Hills. Uh, there's also about 260,000 acres of non-district irrigation occurring in the South Saskatchewan River Basin and much smaller amounts in other river basins. Next slide. So why do we irrigate in southern Alberta? Well, we have good soil, we have lots of sunshine, but we very often do not have enough rainfall to produce good crops. It's very um, variable, of course, but frequently inadequate. You can see the graph on the right showing average precipitation through the growing region for the past several years. And uh, many years there's just not enough to grow a crop. We do, though, have the benefit of a fairly stable uh, or relatively stable Rocky Mountain snowpack that does feed our rivers, providing good water for reservoirs and irrigation. Um, many more crops can be grown on irrigated land than dry land, uh, easily 60 versus far fewer. And of course, even the same crops are far more productive on irrigated land than dry land. Next. So here just showing a couple photos I took last July, uh, very close to home for me. Uh, contrast between unirrigated grain and irrigated grain, same day, same neighborhood. Uh, there's essentially no crop at all on the, the dryland parcel. Next. Okay. Uh, same thing with a different crop, dry peas. Uh, one of the few crops you can grow on dry land, but of course last year they produced basically nothing, whereas the irrigated crop was excellent. Next. And then there's other crops such as corn and potatoes that you simply do not grow without irrigation in southern Alberta. It would be a complete waste of effort. Next. Okay. 
could. On a broader scale, should be on slide seven now. Yeah. Uh, over 40% of the world's food supply depends on irrigation, and it is simply the most reliable prevention for famine that we have. Uh, we continue to make people faster than they wear out, so the population's growing and will continue to grow, it looks like. And Canada is one of the very few countries in the world identified as having the ability to significantly increase its food production to support that growth. And that could be, of course, primary product as well as uh, exporting value-added products as well. Next slide. Uh, in terms of the economics of irrigation, uh, a new study released uh, just last fall found the following for irrigation in Alberta's irrigation districts. 27% um, of the total primary ag sales in Alberta came from the districts, uh, even though we contain only 4.4% of the province's cultivated land base. Uh, districts generated annually 5.4 billion to the provincial GDP, with only 20% accruing to producers and 80% to the region and province. Every dollar that the government of Alberta invests in irrigation districts returns over 350 in direct revenue to the government and approximately 46,000 full-time equivalent employment positions are attributable to the irrigation districts. Next slide. So now into some background on the AIM program itself. Next slide. In terms of the timeline, which um, led up to where we're at today, uh, you could argue that it perhaps started back in the summer of 18 when the Alberta Irrigation Districts Association uh, prepared a, a uh, report ranking various storage reservoirs that had been discussed previously and were currently being discussed, about 12 reservoirs in total looked at. Uh, back in March of 20, uh, the government of Alberta made it known that they were looking for economic recovery projects, so the Alberta Irrigation Districts Association jumped on that and provided a list of irrigation infrastructure projects that we thought would fit the bill. In August of 20, the government and the Canada Infrastructure Bank approached the districts to discuss this project list and some possible funding options. Uh, in September, we negotiated a funding agreement between eight districts, the CIB and the GOA. That was announced in October of 20 uh, with great publicity, and that was the beginning then of the program. And then just last November, uh, there was a further announcement from the government that two more districts had been added to the program uh, with several new projects and additional funding. Next slide. So some of the considerations or complications around this program. First, the CIB would only deal with a single large entity. They would not deal with individual districts. So we formed Irrigating Alberta Inc. to satisfy that. And then the next thing that has caused quite a bit of uh, interest or complications is that confidentiality around the negotiation process that we're in and then the finalization of the legal agreements long after the announcement required all the parties to sign non-disclosure agreements. So as a result, very limited communication to the public, which is very frustrating to us, I think as well as people that would have liked to have known more. And still, details of the loan agreements cannot be disclosed. Next slide. So in terms of the program overview, 10 districts are participating, the eight largest ones and two of the small ones. The Alberta Irrigation Modernization Program is simply a new funding program. It is not one big project. It is the sum of many large and small projects. And some of the announcements would have implied that perhaps this was just some big new project and that is absolutely not true. It's a program, not a project. And most of the projects that are being funded under this program involve replacing canals with pipelines and these projects are not designed to convey water to new areas. Next slide. So slide 13 here shows where the AIM projects are located. A blue dot is a project and some of them are so close together that what looks like one blue dot here is multiple blue dots, but they're scattered among the participating districts 
as you'll see here, more projects in the Eastern and St. Mary River Irrigation Districts than any of the others though, but uh, 10 different districts with projects. Next slide. In terms of the program funding, and again, this has been a source, I think, of quite a bit of confusion as it's been reported. The total program is a $933 million investment, but government's investment in that is a minor portion of it. 70% uh, of the costs are being covered by the 10 participating districts. We're paying 20% up front, and then the CIB is loaning us 50% of the project cost, but that is an interest-bearing loan that will be repaid in full by the districts. 30% of the costs are a grant by the government of Alberta, which of course is much appreciated. Any cost overruns covered 100% by irrigation districts themselves. Next slide. In terms of what the modernization projects are then, there's 92 modernization projects. So that's the vast majority of the projects, excuse me. 81 of those modernization projects involve replacing existing canals with buried water pipelines, which is the same thing districts have been doing for decades. Eight of the projects involve modernizing existing canals. Three of the projects involve either upgrading automation of canal structures or replacing or modernizing major water control structures. The benefits of these modernization projects are many, but I'll just focus on the water-related benefits here. They will save water. Our past pipelines have saved a lot of water. The new ones will as well. They reduce seepage and evaporation losses. They reduce spill. They lead to on-farm application improvements as farmers see that they have a more reliable distribution system serving their farm. And these are all excellent adaptation for climate change by making our water use more efficient. Next slide. Now we'll talk about the reservoir projects. There is investment in up to four reservoir projects as part of this program. What I can tell you is that all four of them are off-stream reservoirs. The current land use for all of them is agricultural land and they are on privately owned land which needs to be acquired by the districts in order to build these reservoirs. Three of the projects have been disclosed already for the reservoirs. Uh, you see them on the map there. Chin Reservoir down in the St. Mary River Irrigation District, which also benefits the Tabor and Raymond Districts, will be expanded under this program. Snake Lake Reservoir up in the EID will be expanded under this program. And a new reservoir will be built in the Bow River Irrigation District at Dead Horse Coulee, uh, just south of Enchamp. Uh, the fourth reservoir location has not yet been disclosed. Uh, the district that has that reservoir has reasons for not wanting to make it public yet, and we're all respecting their wishes. Uh, but increasing storage at these reservoirs will definitely help mitigate the increasing variability that is forecast to occur in the water supply. If we're seeing more water some years, less water other years, the obvious answer is store water when it's abundant so that you can use it when it's scarce. And these reservoirs will nicely complement the existing reservoirs to do exactly that. Next slide. Talking a little about reservoirs though, they are much more than just water storage. This is a bit of a pet peeve of mine. I grew up in the city of Lethbridge. As a kid, I loved to go fishing, um, still do. And I frankly didn't have a clue that a lot of the places that we went fishing were in fact, either irrigation reservoirs or dependent on the irrigation districts for their water supply. Um, reservoirs provide much more than just water storage for farmers. They provide excellent fisheries. Uh, there's over 50 reservoirs across southern Alberta that support the irrigation districts. They provide some incredible wildlife habitat and recreation sites as well. You know, anybody in southern Alberta that's going to spend a day at the beach, whether they know it or not, is going to an irrigation reservoir. 
uh, if you're going fishing, chances are you're going to an irrigation water body unless you're on one of the rivers or if you're in the mountains. And uh, even in the city of Lethbridge, if you're going for a walk around Henderson Lake, you can thank the St. Mary River Irrigation District because without their water supply, there would be no Henderson Lake. Uh, Nicholas Sharon uh, Lake would not exist without irrigation water going into it. So I, I think many of us just don't appreciate, appreciate how much reservoirs really do impact our lives in a positive way. Next slide. Now, project completion timelines. Uh, this program is a pretty tight timeline. Uh, all the modernization projects have to be completed by the spring of 25. Some were started in the fall of 20 and are already completed. A bunch more were done just this last construction season that's wrapping up as we speak. All of the reservoir projects have to be completed by the spring of 28, and that, um, that is really tight timelines, especially for the modernization projects. Next slide. Regulatory and permitting issues related to this uh, program. Now, we've seen quite a few questions about that. What I can say is that nobody is getting a get out of regulation free card as part of this program. All the applicable regulatory processes have to be followed for all projects. Now, some projects may have little or no regulation, but all of the applicable regulations have to be followed for everything. Reservoirs will, of course, be subject to significant regulatory review as determined by the provincial and federal regulators. And one other key point, there will be no new water licenses or allocations issued as part of this program. I think districts are all well aware of the fact that our existing allocations are all we can ever expect to get and that we have to live within those allocations and we're doing so quite well. Next slide. In terms of irrigation expansion, again there's been much in the press about this big irrigation expansion project and that simply um, is not correct. It is an infrastructure modernization program, not an expansion project. There is absolutely no requirement for irrigation expansion under this program. Having said that, it is likely that we will see expansion to some degree in most of the participating districts. It's been estimated that completion of the projects under this program could, not will, could expand the irrigated area within the irrigation districts by over 200,000 acres. And how is that expansion possible? Of course, it's because of the improved water security that will be attributable to these projects. Uh, for the modernization projects, we'll see improved efficiencies. From the reservoir projects, we will see increased storage to get that extra water when it is abundant. And we will also see improved efficiencies from reservoirs. Um, in addition, there are no specific areas designated for new irrigation. Um, I've had people ask you, how much of the expansion are you getting in your district? The answer is, there's no designated amount of expansion and there's no, no designated area for it. If expansion does occur, it will be throughout the districts as has happened through previous expansions, which have been very significant in the past, and we'll look at that later. Uh, next slide, 21. So here's an example of what expansion really looks like in an irrigation district. I chose the BRID, both because I'm the manager and because it has expanded more than any other district in the last uh, couple decades. On the map there, you'll see a bunch of dark green dots. Those are parcels of land that were irrigated prior to 2004 when we had our first major expansion here. The light green parcels were added from expansions that we approved in 2004, 2012, and 2018. Now, in addition to that, a lot of expansion has actually occurred on parcels that were already irrigated prior to 2004. There may have been 100 acres irrigated on the quarter section and the owner wanted to irrigate 150, so they would add acres to that. And that also is part of the expansion process. Next slide. 
in terms of the process itself under the legislation each district has to have an expansion limit they were initially set by the government a very long time ago but the irrigation districts act allows districts to change the expansion limit subject to um, fulfilling several conditions so if we want to change our expansion limit a district has to first determine how the proposed expansion is going to affect water availability including changes to the frequency and the magnitude of water shortages we have to make that information publicly available then we have to hold one or more public meetings then we have to hold a plebiscite where all irrigators can vote whether or not to expand and if they say yes to expansion then the district can pass a new expansion bylaw if they say no to expansion we can't expand next slide some considerations around the whole expansion process most irrigators have no interest in getting any additional irrigation acres themselves they're happy with where they're at there's not an irrigator out there that wants an increased risk of water shortages they all want water security and because of those two considerations irrigators are only going to vote in favor of expansion if they can see that efficiency gains have effectively created water to allow that expansion to happen without increasing their risk next slide so now how is this program aim different from the past slide 25. So in terms of the funding aspect of the program, we can compare it to the irrigation rehabilitation program as well as other things that have been happening. The IRP has been in place uh, for a very long time. It's a cost share program between government of Alberta and the irrigation districts. The current ratio uh, for the cost share is 75% government, 25% districts. That program remains in place even with the new AIM program uh, now in place. Uh, the annual government contribution varies uh, currently is at 12 million dollars per year the total funding since 1969 government has put in 981 million dollars the districts have put in 248 million dollars uh, so that's a long time ago 69 and the program's still going strong now aside from the irp which has funded a large portion of irrigation modernization in the past districts also invest and they invest heavily in projects outside of the irp program using their own funds from 2011 to 19 474 million dollars in total was spent on irrigation modernization of that districts themselves provided 63 percent of the total funding government provided 37 percent so really quite similar to the ratio under the new AIM program, which is 70% district, 30% government. Next slide. Uh, again, AIM will create some new reservoirs. That has happened in the past, of course. As I mentioned, there's about uh, there's just over 50 reservoirs supporting irrigation districts, uh, 41 of which are owned by the districts themselves. Uh, the last time significant large new reservoirs were added was in the 1980s, when the three largest districts each added one new major reservoir. There have been smaller reservoirs added since then, though. Next slide. Uh, reservoir expansions, and again, two of the four projects under AIM are expansions, have been much more common than new reservoirs. Um, since 1980, there's been at least seven major expansions of reservoirs, covering, I believe, five different irrigation districts' water supplies. Uh, collectively, uh, I think that's over 170,000 acre feet of new water storage created. An acre foot, incidentally, is of course the amount of water to cover one acre of land a foot deep. If you prefer a metric number, that's about 1,230 
cubic meters of water. Uh, so lots of reservoir expansions in the past. The new ones are really nothing new. It's just more of the same. In terms of modernization of the district infrastructure, um, total length of our conveyance infrastructure has really remained quite steady through the years. As you can see, the blue line in the graph, that's something around 7,600 uh, kilometers of total distribution. What has been changing though is every year we replace canals with pipelines. We've been doing that since uh, probably sometime back in the 1980s is when it really started to any appreciable degree anyhow. And uh, it's just continued over the years as they make continually bigger pipe. It's become feasible to replace ever larger canals with pipelines. So um, replacing canals every single year with pipelines and under AIM we will continue to do so. Uh, typically 70, 80, 90 kilometers a year of canals replaced with pipelines perhaps is kind of a typical number. Um, under AIM it looks like probably about 400 kilometers of canals will be replaced with pipelines or perhaps a little over 400. Uh, next slide. Now if we were to compare <clears throat> the expansion part of it, which again uh, has got so much publicity out of this, uh, the green line, very important line here, shows the amount of irrigation or irrigated land that has uh, been in the districts going back to 1970. And as you can see, that line is always increasing. It's never been flat. Of course, there's some steep slopes, there's some flatter slopes. But if you look at what's happened in past decades, in the 1970s, we added over 300,000 acres of new irrigation. In the 1980s, nearly 200,000 acres. Uh, slowed down a little. Then in the 90s, it was under 100,000. What's that, 85,000 or so? Uh, the next decade was a pretty slow one from 2000 to 2010 with only 64,000 acres of irrigation added. But then from 10 to 20, we added about 130,000 acres of new irrigation. So how does that compare to AIM? Again, we've said that there could be perhaps 200,000 acres of new irrigation. My personal opinion, that might be just slightly high, but uh, I've been wrong before. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But if we do add 200,000 acres of new irrigation, it's hardly unprecedented. It's really uh, quite similar to what has been happening in the past. Now, of course, we hear a lot about oh, expanding irrigation, requiring more water, and where is it all gonna come from? Um, the commonly held uh, belief that expanding irrigation is requiring more water uh, can I think be fairly well disproved if you'll look at the blue line which shows our diversion and this is the gross diversion for all irrigation districts on a year-by-year -year basis going back there to the early 1970s right through 2020. So what's obvious looking at that I think is that it seems like irrigation demand in terms of actual gross diversion peaked back in the 1980s. Uh, it has been declining since then, even though the irrigated area has become far, far larger since then. So we are irrigating more land with less water. And I see absolutely no reason to believe that AIM projects are going to suddenly require us to use more water uh, than was historically used on whatever new land is irrigated. Uh, the change in on-farm applications from uh, inefficient flood irrigation, inefficient wheel move sprinklers, to highly efficient center pivots and the change in district infrastructure from inefficient leaky uh, canals that evaporate and spill water to extremely efficient closed pipelines allows us to simply use a lot less water to do the same thing. Uh, if you look at diversion per acre in three extremely dry years there, back in 88 it was two feet per acre in 2000, 1.74 and in 2017 just under one and a half feet per acre. But again, even of greater interest I think is the blue line 
diversion of course wildly variable depending on the precipitation each year but uh, gross diversion simply is not increasing as a long-term trend uh, next slide so the summary of this whole program then aim is not an irrigation expansion project it is a new funding program that will accelerate modernization of irrigation districts and modernizing our infrastructure does save water. Most of the projects involve replacing canals with pipelines. Additional water storage will be created at four reservoirs. And all of these are very important climate change adaptations that will enhance food security for everyone. And finally, improved water security should lead to irrigation expansion based on what we've seen in the past, but that will only occur if the current irrigators approve it. And that will benefit the economy if we see greater irrigation expansion. And next slide, which is really the end of the presentation. If you're looking for a lot more detail on any of these projects, you can go to the Alberta Water Portal's website. Um, detail of most of the projects is given on that website, so you can find out uh, much more than what I've shared today. So that is um, all the slides I have. So with that, um, I'll turn it back to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your presentation. That was um, super informative. Um, we have some questions in the queue, so I'll just get started right away. Ian Hurdle, what amount of water is saved by pipeline conversion of a canal? Uh, oh, great sorry. Question. Hang on a minute. Sorry, sorry. My mic's off. Sorry. I'll start again. My mic was off. I'll start again. Thank you very much for your presentation. That was very informative. Um, I'm going to start right with Ian Hurdle's question. What amount of water is saved by pipeline conversion of a canal? Okay. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, there, of course, as you might expect, is there's no one simple answer for this. Every canal loses water to evaporation because it has a, you know, an exposed surface and the sun and the wind uh, tend to make that water evaporate. Uh, every canal loses some water into the ground through seepage. Um, seepage losses in Alberta typically are not all that great, perhaps 3% of the water. In some canals, it would be more, in some less. Uh, you know, in, in some areas of the world where they have very granular soil, seepage losses are extreme. Uh, most of our soils here tend to have a fair bit of clay content or at least silt, which is relatively uh, tight in terms of not losing water, but we still do lose to seepage. Evaporation losses, again, maybe a couple percent there. And then the other loss is every canal is constantly spilling water out the bottom end when everybody, when it, whenever anybody is irrigating. Because if somebody's irrigating on an open canal, there has to be more water than they need at the last pump or that pump would be starved for water. So there's always a certain amount of spill off of any canal. And again, that varies greatly from canal to canal. Uh, that's about as precise as I can get. Like I say, some canals lose far more than others. Okay, our next question comes from um, Henny Mundell. You mentioned that with improved efficiency, more acres can be irrigated with less water. Do you think eventually amount of water used will be changed for rather than area irrigated? I believe that question asked, do we believe the amount of water that we will change our charging model to charging based on volume rather than area. I believe that's the correct interpretation of the question I just heard. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, 
I'm guessing most likely not. And, you know, it's an interesting question, one we hear a lot, certainly in the municipal water world, we're used to people being billed for volume primarily. Um, and, you know, many people have suggested we ought to charge for volume here because that would uh, help with water efficiency. And I can certainly see where people might uh, come to that conclusion. I tend to disagree with it. Uh, for one thing, um, with irrigation use, a farmer has no incentive to over-irrigate. Uh, too much water is damaging to a crop, and if you put on far too much, it could be just as damaging as putting on far too little. So the incentive for a farmer is to uh, put on close to the optimum amount, but no more. Mostly they'll irrigate a little less than optimum because if you are irrigated right to optimum and then happen to get a rain out of nowhere, your crop has too much water and that can complicate things and cause trouble. So I um, see in terms of the incentive to uh, reduce water use by charging for volume, I don't see that as being uh, terribly important. They already have a strong incentive not to over irrigate because power bills, as all of us can relate to, are horrendous and uh, it takes an awful lot of water to, or sorry, a lot of power to pump that water and to spin the pivots. So their, their power bills are substantial. And every time they add a little more water, they pay a steep price for the power to put that water on. Uh, another reason that I personally dislike the concept of moving towards a primarily volumetric charge rather than an area charge is that uh, we have such tremendous variability in the weather uh, but there's, of course, tremendous variability in how much water gets used from year to year. But most of an irrigation district's costs are fixed costs that really do not vary regardless of whether we use a little water or a lot of water. So we have, you know, again, very fixed cost every year. Uh, never know how much water we're going to go through. So if we were to switch our billing to volumetric rather than area uh, in a dry year, we would make a fortune and have more money than we knew what to do with and although we'd always find a good place for it. Mm -hmm. And then in a wet year, we wouldn't have enough money to open the doors hardly. So um, there's maybe a long answer to what I think is a fairly simple question. Good. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Do pipelines increase or decrease the water quality, i.e. algae, aeration, etc.? You know, in terms of the chemistry of water, and, and Mark didn't ask that, but in terms of the chemistry of the water, I, I suspect that there's uh, not necessarily much difference. Although again, uh, the PVC which we use for our pipes isn't leaching out into the water, whereas when water flows over uh, the earth, it does, you know, collect uh, whatever is in there and uh, various things can be dissolved into the water. Of course, it's a tremendous solvent. Uh, in terms of algae, which is really the evidence that the farmer is typically most concerned with in terms of water quality, because algae is a terrible, well, nuisance is hardly the word. It's way beyond a nuisance to have algae in the water because it clogs uh, sprinkler nozzles. So we absolutely want to keep algae out of the system. And of course, closed pipelines uh, with no sunlight in them uh, don't promote algae growth because sunlight is a key uh, requirement to grow algae or aquatic vegetation. So. Uh, pipelines definitely result in cleaner water delivered to the farmer. You know, in terms of the actual chemistry of the water quality, it doesn't spend very long in the pipeline. So whatever uh, is in the canal water really is in the pipeline water, but it does eliminate that further growth of algae and weeds. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. As a former 
irrigation farmer, please remind me of the cost per acre that farmers presently pay to irrigate. Well, that's a really interesting question because there's a lot of ways to look at the cost per acre. I mean, there's the cost that the district charges the farmer. There's the cost of his energy that the farmer pays to his power provider to irrigate. There's the cost per acre of purchasing irrigation equipment. Now, there's the cost of purchasing irrigation land versus dry land, all of which really are part of the cost to irrigate. Uh, you know, the simple question of what do they pay to the district uh, varies tremendously from district to district. Um, we have one district that has a very large land base and has a tremendous amount of land related income. So their uh, costs per acre are essentially nil. Uh, I believe the most expensive district um, they're charged to farmers is $25 per acre. Uh, if we were to look at sort of the average or median, which are probably similar, somewhere is most likely in that 18 or $19 per acre range. And again, that is uh, by far the smallest cost of irrigation to the farmer. Uh, their power bills will be far higher than that per acre each year. Uh, the cost of purchasing irrigated land uh, is an extremely high cost. The irrigation equipment to put on that land for a quarter section, uh, if you want to turn a dry quarter into an irrigated quarter, I think you're looking at today at, at least $200,000. Uh, so well over $1,000 per acre to turn irrigated dry land. And then again, the, the difference in purchasing it is uh, you know irrigated land three or four times the price per acre of dry land. So instead of paying three or 4,000 per acre uh, in most districts, probably now paying well over $10,000 per acre to acquire, to acquire irrigated land. So again, there's a probably a more comprehensive answer than he was looking for. Hmm. Thank you. Um, Philip Meinzer, since we are struggling to meet water conservation objectives and then in brackets in stream flow, would irrigation districts consider using water gain through efficiencies for in-stream needs? Okay, that's a great question. <clears throat> um, bottom line is um, a lot of the water that we've gained through efficiency is in fact helping improve in-stream flows uh, right now because we have saved more water than we have used for expansion to date. I think that was quite clearly shown on that last slide where uh, even though we've expanded a lot, our diversions have decreased even more. So some of those savings are there for in-stream flows already. They are still licensed to the districts though, so that's not to say that we have to leave them in the river. Um, there, if there were incentive for districts to uh, leave water in the river as compared to expanding, uh, that that would be an interesting discussion to have, one that I would certainly love to be involved in. Um, but as, as it stands, like I say, our, our efficiency gains are going to a combination of expanding irrigation and leaving more water in the rivers. Uh, as far as the water we save in the future, what will it be used for? Again, I think the CIB and the government, uh, government of Alberta are hoping that we're going to expand irrigation by a whole bunch. Uh, that's why they're participating in the program. Uh, but again, it's not guaranteed. If the irrigators prefer having greater water security to expansion, they could say no to expansion on a large scale or even a small scale, in which case uh, some years that water is there for use if they need it, but more often than not, it just stays in the river. Cheryl Bradley, is irrigation expansion required by IDs to pay back the loan to CIB? And I'm assuming IDs are irrigation districts. Yes, no, that's a great question. 
typically when an irrigation district expands it does charge the uh, purchaser of the new irrigation acre which is the right to add irrigation to their land a capital assets charge for that and then of course as we add more acres those districts that have an annual water rate for irrigating are able to collect that rate for more acres so expansion certainly can provide additional income to irrigation districts under the funding program and again I, I cannot get into details of the agreements but there is no obligation to expand uh, so there's no obligation to create those expansion revenues to repay the loan what there is though is an absolute obligation to repay that loan so uh, some districts i know could very easily pay repay the loan uh, without having to create any additional income from expansion to of new irrigation at all for other districts, it may be more challenging to repay the loan without adding some additional revenue from expansion. I really couldn't speak to it on a district by district basis. Uh, you know, the district that I manage, uh, we could certainly repay the loan very easily without expanding at all. Having said that, based on our past history, as we save water, uh, there's always a lot of people looking for expansion. So there's pressure to expand from those who want more irrigation, but uh, again, no obligation to do so. Uh, practically, some districts might find that the easiest way to repay the loan, others wouldn't need to bother expanding in order to easily repay the loan. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Are there upcoming irrigation technologies that will increase our efficiency? Oh, great question. Um, always hard to have a really good crystal ball. Uh, you know, in terms of the, uh, the distribution efficiency, I, I think we could probably all agree that it's hard to be more efficient than a closed pipeline that has no seepage or no evaporation and no spill. So in terms of the distribution end, I think that's probably as good as it gets. Uh, now, having said that, there's large canals, of course, that are just economically impractical to pipeline. Uh, you know, as an engineer, I always feel like if you throw enough money at a problem, you can more often than not solve the engineering aspects, but it, it's, it's ridiculous to think that the largest canals would ever be pipelines in my mind because of the prohibitive cost. Uh, technologies to improve water management within the canals exist though uh, in terms of automation and that can help make our distribution end more efficient. Now the flip side to it, and this is probably what he was really asking though, is the on-farm efficiency, which again, we've seen just huge improvements over the years. Uh, again, back, let's say 50, 60 years ago, uh, irrigation was dominated in Alberta by flood irrigation, uh, where you simply, you know, divert water onto the land, let it run across the land, soak in a lot, runs off the bottom end. And that is still, by the way, by far the most common irrigation method worldwide. Sprinkler irrigation is a tiny minority, really, worldwide. In Alberta, it happens to be a strong majority. And that's one reason that we like to remind people uh, that irrigation in Alberta is really just about as good as it gets, or probably as good as it gets anywhere in the world. Uh, we're incredibly efficient here compared to a lot of places. Uh, might we get more efficient with other technologies? Um, sure, I, I suppose we might. You know, just in the time I've been involved in the district, uh, again, we've seen uh, pivots themselves become much more efficient. A, a low pressure pivot with drop tubes is a very efficient machine. Uh, of course, you'll never achieve 100% efficiency in terms of every drop of water that comes out of the system actually gets used by the crop because there's always some water uh, lost whether it's by percolation or by evaporation uh, but we're getting much more efficient so with a low pressure pivot and i'm 
perhaps sounding like I'm rambling a bit here, but efficiencies are already into the upper 80% range. So, and again, most of the irrigation in Alberta is low pressure pivots now, uh, over 80% of the area. If you take uh, some districts, it's more than that. Again, in the BRID, which I manage, we're looking at 95% of our land is under pivots right now. So, uh, you know, we could turn the remaining 5% into pivots eventually. I'm sure we'll never hit 100%. But once you've got, you know, 95% of your land using systems that are, let's say, 87% efficiency, you're doing pretty darn good already. Uh, drip irrigation is, in some applications, a little more efficient. It's still definitely not 100%. Uh, the, the efficiency gain going from flood or wheel move sprinklers to uh, low pressure pivot is much, much greater than the efficiency gain going from, uh, say, a low pressure pivot to uh, buried drip systems. Um, you know, might pivots get better? Perhaps somebody will design a better nozzle that's even more efficient, but again, they're pretty good now. Uh, I know there's been uh, looking at uh, pivots that simply trail uh, drip tubes over the ground as a method, which might be a little more efficient. Again, compatible with some crops, not with others. Again, looking at drip, uh, very good for some crops, certainly not for others. Any crop that requires a significant tillage on an annual basis, uh, drip lines, uh, would not be very applicable for most of that, I believe. Uh, but as far as what technologies might we see in the future, who knows? I look forward to seeing what comes down over the next 20 or 30 years. Our next question goes from Laurie Schultz. Thank you for your presentation. You mentioned that there are various uses for reservoirs, and then in brackets, agriculture and recreation. Can reservoirs water be redirected for other users? For example, industrial use. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the physical realities of it, um, the answer is simply, of, of course they can. Uh, you know, there's many industries already that get their water from irrigation districts uh, through our system, whether it's through their own water licenses that we convey the water for them or whether it's from the district licenses themselves. Um, so yeah, reservoir water is absolutely usable for industry. It's usable for municipal use too. I mean, a tremendous number of municipalities in Southern Alberta get their water uh, from irrigation reservoirs, uh, ultimately. I mean, of course, all of our water ultimately goes back to the river it came from, but uh, on its way from the river to the end user, I, I mean, a lot of water spends time in an irrigation reservoir as part of that journey. So yes, it could be used. Um, again, licensing considerations are, of course, very significant. Uh, any significant water use does require a water license, but again, with an appropriate water license, there's no reason that water in reservoirs cannot be used for industry as well as for agriculture. Hey, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Disturbing the eastern slopes through forest harvesting and mining would increase silting and release of minerals and pollutants such as arsenic and psyllium. Is this a concern to irrigation, irrigators? Um, I think what we can safely say is that irrigators, much like probably everybody else in southern Alberta and everywhere, are concerned about water quantity and water quality. You know, we certainly need a quantity of water to work with and that water needs to be of sufficient quality. So degradation of quality concerns us, degradation of quantity concerns us. Uh, you know, having said that, we wouldn't necessarily automatically equate uh, other activities such as forestry or mining with automatic degradation of either one. Uh, you know, our hope would be that through careful regulation and good stewardship, uh, that there is room on the landscape for multiple uh, uses. 
again, recognizing that everything needs to be done responsibly because irresponsible use uh, in any way can certainly impair the ability of others to, to use the resource. Our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley. Will, in, will in-stream flow needs be considered in regulatory review and then in brackets impact assessment of the proposed project? That would certainly be a question for the regulator rather than the irrigation districts. Um, uh, in terms of uh, you know reservoir review, I, I really cannot speculate as to what they will be looking at in their review of the project. So good question for somebody from the regulator rather than the irrigation district side of things. Okay, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. What would happen in a very low flow year where the amount of water available is markedly reduced? Now we've certainly experienced that in the past. You know, I, I remember quite well uh, 2001, which is uh, the worst year in memory. There may have been years as bad in the 1930s, it appears. But what happened that year, again, not all districts were impacted. Uh, some, uh, those on the Bow River particularly, really didn't have too much in terms of impact to their water supply. But things were very bad that year for the districts relying on the southern tributaries. And it was recognized that things were going to be bad. They went into the previous fall with lower than normal storage in their reservoirs. And then the snowpack, which is the major source of our water flow, was very poor that year. So it was seen, the trouble could be seen coming well ahead of time. So in response to that, there was a, a major effort among all water users to determine how they could best share the available water that there would be. And of course, irrigation uses more water than other uses in Southern Alberta. So they're the single biggest uh, player in terms of what needed to be changed. But everybody got together and collectively decided how much water could be made available and how it would be shared so that um, the pain and the benefit uh, would be shared um, as fairly as possible among all users. And that's what I believe would simply have to happen in the future. If, if we recognize any year that there just isn't enough water to make it work, uh, then it's time to sit down ahead of time and figure out how we're going to um, share the water as well as possible. Our next question comes from Claire Peterson. Pipelines are a tremendous advantage, especially for some farmers that are located where the pressure in those pipelines are almost sufficient for their needs. Dot, 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 big advantage. Any comments? Okay, well, the simple comment is, you're right. Uh, <laughs> but maybe I'll just elaborate on that slightly. Uh, you know, our, our pipelines in most cases are simply gravity pipelines. There's no pumps on them. There are a few pumped pipelines among the districts, but they are a tiny mi minority. And within those pumped pipeline projects, the farmers pay the district for the power cost and they, they get enough power that they generally don't need to pump themselves. But as, as he mentioned, there are other pipelines where there's tremendous pressure just because of the, the topography that the pipeline is traversing. And once you get further down along the pipeline, some guys uh, don't need any pump or else they can go from say a 40 horsepower pump to a 20 horsepower pump, which is still a big advantage. So yes, there are real advantages to some people based on where they sit on the map relative to where the pipeline starts and ends. Uh, so they're getting lots of pressure. Some districts, actually uh, assess a pressure surcharge to irrigators that enjoy pressure on those pipelines. Other districts don't and say, well, that's just the luck of the draw. Uh, 
you know, typically the further down the pipeline you go, the better your pressure is. One thing that we like to remind ourselves uh, quite often is that the person who's at the end of a long little ditch uh, often has the worst possible delivery in the district. You know, if things go wrong, he's running out of water. He's put up with a lot of annoyance and aggravation over the years and then finally gets a pipeline. And all of a sudden, instead of being the worst off, he's the best off. So is it really fair now to turn around and say, well, after putting up with this horrible ditch for 30 years and running out of water, uh, now you've got things good and we're gonna charge you extra because you're the lucky guy at the end of the line with more pressure. So I know in, in the district that I'm from, we have chosen not to charge for pressure so far. And that is certainly part of our reason. Other districts do assess some pressure charges, uh, recognizing that there is a real benefit if you're getting significant pressure out of the pipeline. Uh, Henny Mundell, Richard, as a former plant breeder at the Lethbridge Research Centre, e.g. dry beans in brackets, for close to 30 years, but now retired for 15 years, and this in capital letters, thanks, <laughs> thanks for wonderful overview of on irrigation in southern Alberta. Well, so, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Laurie Schultz, of the reservoir projects, and then in brackets, Chin, Dead Horse, and Snake Lake. The name or location of the other is not disclosed, and I think you mentioned that. Why would this be? What considerations could be behind this lack of transparency? <laughs> this is a great question, and it's one where, you know, I, I'm with you, Laurie. I, I wish the other one were disclosed. It would make it a whole lot easier when responding to people that have concerns uh, if it were a reservoir in our district it would be but again as districts we respect each other's right to uh, disclose information that we're willing and ready to disclose and what is uh, leading the district with the fourth the mystery reservoir not to disclose it more than anything is a concern about uh, the process of acquiring the land uh, you know it's not easy to acquire land for a reservoir uh, well, okay, perhaps it is easy. One can go the expropriation route if necessary, but we all like to avoid expropriation. Most of us have no experience with it and would prefer that we never have experience with having to expropriate land. So you want to try to negotiate with the current landowners and acquire the land through mutually agreeable business deals. And uh, that district feels that disclosing that reservoir at this time might uh, cause extra difficulty in the process of acquiring the land. So that is what's driving the secrecy there. And uh, again, if it were in our district, I'm not sure we'd share that concern with, with Dead Horse Reservoir and the BRID. Uh, you know, we held our first public meeting a very long time ago with irrigators and others in the region to say, here, it's coming. Uh, if any of you'd like to sell some land to us, we're buying. And we have acquired some land as a result of that process, actually. But uh, again, we respect that district's right to uh, disclose the information that they see fit to disclose, even though the rest of us wish they had hurry up and tell everyone what they're doing. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Salination is a huge problem in Southern California. Is there concern that irrigation in the long run and then many decades will also cause degradation of our irrigational lands? Um, oh, sorry, our ag agricultural lands. Yeah. No, that, that, that is a great question. And I think what we can safely say based on our experience in Southern Alberta is that uh, 
salinity issues were far greater in 1970 than they are today in the irrigated regions. And that is a function, uh, again, of the changes in the on-farm application methods. Uh, with center pivots, it's a very precise irrigation method. It's very easy to uh, apply the right amounts of water at the right time to avoid uh, pushing salts up. Uh, they can effectively be used to flush salts down in the system where salinity is a concern and have been used effectively to do so, uh, particularly in conjunction with subsurface drainage in some areas. Uh, the old canals that were so prevalent, I say every one of them seeps and, and canal seepage does tend to bring salinity uh, to the surface. Uh, so many of those canals are, are of course long gone now and replaced with uh, leak proof buried pipelines. So although it's a, it's a valid question and concern, you know, can irrigation cause salinity? And the answer is yes, it can, but done properly uh, in the right soils, uh, it can be avoided and, and like I say, we've seen a tremendous improvement in the amount of land affected by salinity in Southern Alberta with the, the improvements that have been made in recent decades. Next question, Councillor Knut Peterson. Strong winds are a reality in Southern Alberta and farmers sometimes would like to turn off their irrigation during such times. Will pipelines make it easier to manage ordered water volumes? Um, the simple answer is yes. Uh, with a pipeline system, it, it is easier to uh, shut off uh, if there's a reason to and not lose the water, particularly though, if there is another balancing reservoir on the canal that's feeding the pipelines. And that's an important part of the picture too. And that's why I refer to uh, reservoirs also being able to improve efficiency. Uh, you know, if you can picture, say, a long canal, a, a hundred mile long canal that doesn't have a reservoir anywhere along it, uh, if it's all little canals coming off the side, yeah, there's water spilling everywhere. And if people shut down, it's spilling out the little canal on the side. If uh, all the little lateral canals coming off the side are replaced with pipelines, but it's still just a big long pipeline with no reservoirs and uh, people shut off, yes, it's not spilling out the little side lateral anymore. It's all spilling out the end of the big canal instead. So you're still inefficient. But if there are reservoirs along that long canal to capture that water, then it becomes very, very efficient. And that is the case in most districts. But again, some additional storage and additional reservoirs will absolutely help with that. Again, in the case of the BRID, Dead Horse Reservoir will play a key role uh, in that scenario with allowing us to capture those surges in flow that happens when there are shutdowns. Our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley. There seems to be a reluctance to consider the entire project, modernization components, reservoirs and expanded acres in assessing its impacts. Why is that? I would say the simple answer is because it is not a project, it is a program. It's that simple. Right, you mentioned that right at the start. Um, that's it for us today with the questions. Um, we've got quite a few thank yous in the, in the, in the chat. Um, I wonder before we wrap up the session, would you be able to give us a, a take-home message to our viewers, please? Well, sure. I, I, I think the, the take-home message I would have is that, you know, irrigation is important. It's important on a global scale. It's important on a regional and a local scale. And this new program will enable districts to modernize their infrastructure more quickly than we could otherwise. And that modernization will improve water security for whatever end use that water security is put to. Wonderful. Um, 
as you were just speaking, another question snuck in, and we do have a couple more minutes, so I wonder if you're okay with me reading it. Um, sure. Knut Peterson, do irrigation districts have a say in who gets permission slash licenses to use water for irrigation straight from the rivers? We do not. And again, I'm sure most of uh, the people participating today are, are well aware that uh, to get a new irrigation license in this, or a new water license in the South Saskatchewan River Basin, um, with the exception of the Red Deer River, is uh, virtually impossible because they were closed to new applications for allocations many years ago. So there's lots of private irrigation licenses out there, lots of other water licenses, but uh, anybody wanting to get a new water license in the Bow or the Old Man Basins um, really can't go to government and just apply for a water license like they could have decades ago. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, for your presentation. It was super informative. Um, Ian Hurdle, excellent information regarding pipelines. I certainly find it fascinating. Um, and on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much. And for folks listening in, please join us next week. Jeffrey Hodgson, as demographics change, will Canada's pension plan be sustainable? Thanks so much, and we'll see everybody Thank you. next week.